As we come back together this morning, we continue to look uh, through the lectionary. The reflections this Sunday reflect on what it means to see and be a part of and reflect the very glory of God. We have this amazing passage uh, from Exodus, this revelation of Moses seeing just the back of God's glory, just the leftovers as he passes by and he sees just a hint of God's glory and his face shines. And you then have this amazing picture of the transfiguration where the very glory of God manifested in two men who'd gone on before. Interestingly enough, not dead in the way that we think of dead, but at rest and with the Lord or manifested along with Christ. And then we'll look this morning at how that continues in and through our lives. And this comes, of course, because of the reality of the resurrection. See, the glory of God being reflected doesn't make sense unless we have what we learned about last time in 1 Corinthians. That there is this great reality and hope of transformation that we will not all die, but we will all be changed. That there is this reality that this physical form will be transformed in such a fashion as to both be material and spiritual in a way that we don't fully get our minds around. I can't explain it beyond saying both are true. And we know this is challenging because the resurrected Jesus both was able to pass through walls and eat fish. That He is the same but different. That at times it was difficult for His disciples to recognize Him unless He announced Himself. And then of course they realized that of course it was always Jesus. He is the same but different glorified, holy, and the same. This is the promise. This is what Jesus does in the middle of history, and this is what is promised to us all at the consummation of all things. Not the end of all things, but the consummation. So that we might enter into a new existence with God. And that existence is partially already here. We're supposed to live out of that reality, that hope, that ethic, that promise. And that's what Paul's wrestling with in 2 Corinthians as he continues to address a church that no doubt had a lot of very educated and wealthy Romans. Both men and women who, who had trained in philosophy, they seem to have been a good section of folks who were very well off and very much in and about the great high Roman culture. And they were trying to translate this new Christian faith, and they were susceptible, of course, to the same temptations we all are, about trying to make this faith more human, more understandable, more like what we experience in the world. And Paul has to regularly come back to the Corinthians and encourage them about the difference of the Gospel itself. And so we pick up the story now in 2 Corinthians. We're going to read uh, out of chapter 3, starting 
verse 12, we're going to read through verse 2 of chapter 4. Hear now God's Word. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Spirit is, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But, with, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would continue to lead us by Your Spirit, that we might in this time of worship, as we open Your Word, be refreshed and renewed. We ask that all that You have applied to us in Christ might give us the breadth, the depth, the eyes and the ears, to comprehend what it is You are calling us to and that we might delight in it. And Lord, whatever is said this morning that is not true, not useful for the building up of Your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. Amen. So, when I was in seminary, the, uh, the first thing you learn is, is to tell really good illustrations. I was absent for most of those classes. I don't know how to tell those kinds of stories very well. And at their best, what a good illustration does is it draws you into the richness of the moment, and then you can unpack that good illustration in such a way that it enriches the whole flow of a text or a speech, or ideally a sermon. And there is a way in which that great communication skill needs to be honored and respected, and I love to hear sermons from people who can do it well. Good storytellers are brilliant. And there is a way in which I can relate to those stories in a way that I cannot relate to other kinds of speech. And I feel more comfortable and I feel more drawn in to those sermons or those talks. There is always, in every given time in history, a kind of rhetorical style that, that the culture finds more attractive and more engaging. And there's nothing wrong with the rhetorical style per se, unless that rhetorical style is being used to really cover the truths and realities that are being communicated. 
You see, the question isn't whether or not you can good illustrations or whether you're good with jokes or whether you're good with uh, Greek exposition in a sermon or any other kind of way of speaking. The communication act per se isn't at fault. But at the end of this section we read, what Paul is speaking to is what happens when the communication form is used to cover up or soften or abrogate or hide the truth that needs to be spoken. And in Paul's day, rhetoric, rhetoric was exceedingly important. The Greeks and the Romans had raised it to an incredibly high level. And the act of being able to speak well, even if what you were speaking about was rubbish, was in itself valuable and honored. If you could say it well, that was all that was important. Whether it was worth saying really didn't matter quite as much. And so, when we talk about the Corinthians wanting and understanding their cultural norms to be applied in their new faith, it's not surprising that they became susceptible to those who would come, trained in the rhetorical arts, to speak of this new faith and to tie it in with what they understood culturally. And what Paul has discovered is that these teachers who are coming in are beginning to communicate and cover the gospel in a way that is unhelpful to these new believers, appealing more to their sense of rhetoric and less to the realities of truth. And they are wrestling with the rather counterintuitive and challenging nature of the gospel itself. And Paul here hits back at their desire to make it sound better, to make it prettier, to make it more acceptable. And he anchors his teaching back in the basics of the gospel, which are always an affront. Always an affront to certain aspects of a fallen human nature. Paul in verse 2 renounces clever ways. He desires to build again the gospel from its root and core. That means undermining the Greek and Roman understanding of strength and rhetorical skill over substance and its tendency to avoid certain controversy and confrontation of cultural norms. So we're going to walk through the text now. We started in verse 2 of 4, but now we're going to jump back up to verse uh, 13. We're going to look at how culture, through rhetoric, tries to manage the problem of death. How then the Messiah defeats death. And then a life of freedom. So first of all, managing death. That's really what's at the core of Paul's beef with their rhetorical language is that they have tried to make Jesus prettier. So if you go back to chapter 1, Paul talks about how weak he really is. He talks about his own personal weakness and his need for the strength of Christ. He talks about how he was dependent upon others. And he frames that in the context of Jesus and the cross. The reality that what the world sees as dishonor and brokenness and embarrassment and shame is the very foundation for how Jesus ministers. 
He ministers from the bottom up. He appears by worldly uh, uh, expectations to be weak. We know this to be true, and yet all the time we are seduced to see Jesus as mighty in the way that we think of mighty. There was a whole epoch where uh, where there were a lot of Christian t-shirts, and they were were Christian t-shirts. And one of the things that that was uh, often put on the t-shirt was a very large Jesus, uh, a very very strong-looking Jesus, uh, doing push-ups with a cross on his back, and it's sort of his pain is your gain. It was a rather rather difficult shirt for some people to look at. I, I, I won't go too deep into it. Just accept to focus on the idea that we want to see Jesus as this strong, powerful, muscled individual in the way that we think of what strength looks like. And so Jesus is, is in His power muscling up the cross as opposed to the image that we have in Scripture itself, which is He couldn't even carry the cross all the way to His own crucifixion. He'd been beaten so badly, he was so weak at that point, that he couldn't carry his own cross. And yet, in that moment was the greatest glory of God. Because in that weakness, in submitting to sin and death and brokenness, he defeated it and brought life to you and me. As shameful as that notion, as difficult as it is to embrace a defeated, bloody, bruised, naked Jesus, in our day, it was certainly no easier to embrace that idea of a hero in the first century. And so there were teachers who were coming, and we have documents to show that they would try and gussy Jesus up. And they would make him less the divine sacrifice and more a sage teacher. And sort of try and honor him and lift him up, not as the divine crucified for our sins, but as a great teacher who showed us the way. And rhetorically with flourish, they would talk about the wisdom of Jesus and they would head us down the road eventually a century later towards the Gnostics of secret wisdom that Jesus was revealing. And if you got into the secret knowledge of Jesus, you could discover secret things. And there's nothing more fun than when you're rich and bored than looking for secret things that make you even better than everybody else around you. And so it's attractive. They would sit in salons and have these philosophers come and speak to them in eloquent ways. And Paul is saying, I am not that guy. And this faith is not that faith. And do not be seduced when they come to your salons and begin to talk about secret knowledge and secret wisdom. You see, we're not like Moses. We don't veil things. The veil is gone. The glory is here. There is no secret knowledge. There is no fading glory anymore. What happened to Moses in the decay of His glory, the glory that was in His face, is not the operating reality today. But we understand that human tendency. Because we are people saddled with decay and death, we cover up. We veil. We don't want people to see the death and decay. We do this in spiritual ways. We do it in physical ways. 
Paul stresses weakness. Unveiled weakness. It's not like Moses. We don't veil the decay. Because the decay is no longer the rule. Not ultimately, not spiritually. Another way I'm structuring this sermon, because I think all of us feel that reality one way or another, is that four-part discussion or four-part structure we use from how people change. This is the heat we all feel. Our beauty and our strength is failing. And we try and act younger or look younger than we, used, than we do. Our finances are at any given moment under pressure and we fear for what happens and so we have to cover. Our own sense of security and identity is being undermined at work or with our friends and so we cover or we distance The use of veils. Sometimes we call them masks out of other texts. Is well known and it is the heat that drives us. And Paul's answer to that is to grab hold of weakness, not to cover. But it's not just the covering of death and decay that is in view in this text. But in verse 14 and following, we have the uh, reality that we cover ourselves in our rebellion. And so the uh, text here is not that God hardened their hearts. This is not like the challenging text with Pharaoh in Exodus. This is the hardening of our own hearts, of seeing the goodness of God. And this is reflecting back on the Israelites around Sinai, whether it is their complaining about bread and water and food, or whether it was their complaining about uh, not being in Egypt anymore where they ate meat, or the difficulty of the hike, or the fact that Moses was gone too long and they needed a God who would be present, so they made a calf. Go down the litany. They hardened their own hearts. God would reveal His glory. He would split the Red Sea. They would walk across it. They would turn around and say, what have you done for me lately? God would shake the very foundations of the earth. The mountain would shake and they would go, well, where is He now? He would appear every morning uh, as, well, the the, the cloud of of smoke, of course, is just the smoke from the fire. The pillar of fire at night smoked during the day. He would lead their people and yet, interestingly enough, they could regularly sin. Regularly sin in the face of of the Shekinah glory of God being present in the tabernacle in the midst of their camp. Now again, that's not to make us feel better. We have the Holy Spirit and we sin regularly. The veil is covering that ability to read the text, to see the goodness of God, to see His glory, and yet in our own pain and in our own suffering, to deny it. It's the hardening of years of rejection. It is the callousness that gets built up when we reject the truth of who God is and the way He designed us. And when we deny His wisdom and deny the way we were created and we act regularly contrary to our design, we become callous to the goodness and the right image-bearing that we were created to have. And that may be pride. You're a survivor. 
You can do it. You're your own Messiah. Right? There is this tendency in all of us to harden our hearts and to say, it is by my strength that I have survived. God may have given me a little bit of help, but it is enough, it, it, it's my strength. And so we are veiled to Isaiah 53 and the brokenness that He was bruised for our iniquities. And by His stripes we are healed. And we grab hold of those things that talk about God helps those who help themselves, which of course isn't in the Bible. We embrace this reality that God gets us started, but, but we are good people, better people, striving to do good. The Israelites, of course, thought they were. And particularly in the first century, they had grabbed hold of God's covenant and tried to follow it so faithfully and it had built up a pride that they were callous to the revelation of the Messiah Himself because He came in weakness and brokenness. He defied their expectations of a mighty righteous man. We can even take the righteous rules of God and construct them in such a way in our pride that it veils our hearts from seeing the richness of who God is in the Incarnation. Or perhaps the heart is veiled with pain because you have suffered. Can you imagine how angry you'd be if you were an Israelite? And this probably happened. Why wouldn't it have happened? You literally get out three days after some Egyptian slave master killed your son. Your son dies three days ago in a mine or building a pyramid, and then three days later is Passover, and you all walk out. And you want to know why, God, did my son not get the chance to go into freedom? That's an honest question. The Israelites had suffered for 400 years under the yoke of slavery. They were victims of unspeakable abuse. How can you not leave that situation and have your heart veiled to the goodness of God because why wasn't He good the day before? Why did you wait? Why did that suffering happen? Why did that person get sick? Why couldn't you have acted sooner or on their behalf? And those are honest questions and honest feelings that we're unlikely to get an answer for. But what I do know is if we hold, and when we hold that bitterness in our heart, it veils us from the truth of the Gospel. Because you can't see the goodness of Jesus. God can't be a loving and gracious God who gives Himself if He is the one who didn't fill in the blank. Save that person care for that person, heal that person, that loved one of mine. You see, the sneakiness of death and the way it veils our hearts from the goodness and reality of God is that in the midst of this world, we do wrestle with real, tra excuse me, real tragedy that makes us believe that it is eternal tragedy without context, without hope, without structure. The Messiah gives structure and context to both our pride 
and our pain. Those things that create the heat. Because we know we don't like the thorns. We don't like, at our best moments, being judgmental jerks thinking we're better than everybody else. That's not a fun way to live. Most judgmental people I know are not happy people because they're always afraid that they won't live up to their own standards. And those who are trapped in pain and cannot get out want comfort. They don't like the notion. It brings no joy to be embittered in the absence of an answer. So what does God do? Well, according to Paul, He brings the Messiah who defeats death. But in Christ, in this new Messiah, in the King, the veil is removed. We have the hope of being able to see in God's Word clearly both the reality of death and God's answer. And beginning to trust that God's answer will be sufficient for the problem. Even if any given moment in my life it seems insufficient for the pain that I'm dealing with or insufficient for the spiritual needs that I have. Paul says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses has read the heart, if you haven't come to Christ, even today there's a veil over our hearts in 15. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You say, great, East. Well, I thought I was a believer, but I don't feel like the veil is removed. Well, there needs to be context for that. The veil has been removed. That's the cross. The hope and the glory of the Messiah in verse 12 is filled out in verses 16 and 17. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now the scholars tell us that the way the grammar works here is that what Paul is talking about is the way we reflect the glory of God to one another. See, as the veil is removed, it's not so much that instantaneously I can now see all of the goodness of God myself. It actually is interestingly that I am able to reflect the glory of God to you and you can reflect the glory of God to me and that's the way I begin to see the goodness of God. Not in isolation, not just me having my eyes open so now I can understand all of the text, get all comfort, get all encouragement, and God and I can have a vertical relationship in which I can now live at peace and harmony and strength. No, actually no. And that's not surprising because what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians, which is you're supposed to be a part of a body, which means actually the unveiling is the ability for me to reflect the glory of God to you. That just as Moses could not see the glory himself, he reflected the glory of God to others in the same way you are called to reflect the glory of God to me that I might have that peace and comfort and assurance. As you speak God's words to me, as you reassure me, as you speak into my pain, as you challenge my pride, I begin 
to be transformed increasingly into the image of God. And as, Lord willing, I reflect the glory of God to you as the veil is no longer on my face, but you can see the glory of God in my countenance towards you, you too can be ministered to and transformed. It's fundamentally dependent upon the body of Christ. Paul isn't changing here his commitment to the body of Christ and saying now each individual person can have an unveiled knowledge of God where their hearts will never be tempted to think about death and decay anymore as being ultimate. It's just not the way it was designed. And so if we have put our hope in having our veil removed in such a way that I will no longer doubt and that I will somehow spiritually feel instantly comforted, we're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. It's not that that, of course, doesn't happen, and the Holy Spirit does dwell within us. And there are amazing moments of knowing in quiet contemplation and in times of prayer and meditation the comfort and presence of the Lord. Amen and amen. But that is not what is in view in this text. When we talk about unveiling in this text, it is that that glory might be shown to another, that we might encourage one another in the faith. I need you to be a reflector of God's glory. You're the mirror I look into, and I'm the mirror you look into, that we can see the glory of our God. Which then produces fruit. If that's the cross, that's the transformation that the Messiah brings, allowing me to be a reflector of His glory to a watching world. Then I know real freedom. I don't have to build that reflection up myself. I am now interdependent and I no longer have to worry in the same way that I did in the past that my pain is ultimate or my pride is ultimate because I'm in a community that addresses both that encourages me, that weeps with me when I weep, and rejoices rightly when I rejoice. And that's the ministry we have for one. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, by the mercy of God, having the ministry to be reflectors of the glory of God, unveiled, unrestrained, reflectors of the glory of God, what a mercy that is. We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. And there is reason, often, it feels like, to lose heart. Especially if I'm more interested in my own spiritual development at any given moment. Or if, perchance, I get distracted by my own crisis. But to be simply at peace with reflecting God's glory and trusting the Spirit to be the one who transforms others and myself, it causes me to have a stronger heart. A stronger heart built on the assurance that the one who was the Messiah who broke down the walls of expectation of what real strength looks like, what real glory looks like, what real transformation is. That my heart can begin to see the goodness of God in the way that it really is being manifested. 
not through my own veiled lens of what I think should be good and right and strengthen my heart. My heart is going to beat increasingly in line with what's true about God. And that means going through the valley of the shadow of death. That means days of great celebration and great sadness. It means at times putting my faith in God and not what I can see. When my heart begins to rest in that place, as I look into your eyes and you look into mine, we have a heart that can endure. Endure this time of transition. Endure this time of already and not yet. Because our God reigns, because the Messiah has freedom for you and for me by His Spirit, given to us in all of its glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that You be merciful to the preaching of Your Word. We do, Lord, desire to be open to Your Word, to be open to one another, to be open to the Spirit. Lord, we ask that You would give us the strength to do so in a way that is honoring to You and in ever greater degrees reflects Your glory for Your praise, for the honor of Your name. Amen.